Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corrine, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, sponsored by Houston Improv Festival, which will be taking place April 16th through the 19th, 2015. Now, I'll be there doing a live taping of an episode of Improv Nerd and teaching a series of artist low comedy workshops. Submissions are now open through New Year's Day. All you need to do to submit is go to HoustonImprovFestival.com slash submissions. That is HoustonImprovFestival.com slash submissions. This episode of Improv Nerd is also sponsored by the Orange County Improv Festival, or as we like to say in the business, the OC Improv Festival. Spectacle Improv Engine is now taking submissions for the 2015 Orange County Improv Festival, which will take place April 23rd through the 25th of 2015. Now, to submit your team, log on to ocimprovfestival.com. That's ocimprovfestival.com before the submission deadline of February 15th. Come spend your vacation time laughing, learning, and being a part of a community while the sun shines year-round. That's the Orange County Improv Festival. Now let's get to today's episode because I think you're really going to like it because today we have a comedy legend. He's best known for co-creating the HBO sketch series Mr. Show and playing lawyer Sal Goodman on AMC's Breaking Bad. He's written for Saturday Night Live writing the famous Matt Foley sketch for Chris Farley. He has a new book out called A Load of Hooey. We're talking about no other than Bob Odenkirk. In this interview, and there's no improv in this because this is just a straight-on interview uh, in this episode, Bob talked to us about his alcoholic father, how he had a hard time when he worked at Second City here in Chicago, and uh, how he enjoys mentoring young talent. Uh, we talked about other things, too. We, it, it's a wonderful interview. And, and I want to say, before we get to this interview, any comedy nerd or any improv nerd is going to love this episode because he covers so much material. I've been interviewing people for about 15 years, between improv nerd and then uh, public radio here in Chicago. And whenever I interview somebody I have a lot of respect for, I always have this expectation. And it, it's more of a fantasy, really, because... I expect we're going to hit it off, they're going to find me really, really funny, and they're going to offer me a job, and then I'm going to move to Los Angeles. And in this interview, that didn't happen, but something good, equally as good, did. At the end of the interview, uh, Bob said to me, and he was so generous and so honest, and I really appreciate uh, his honesty, because... um, People uh, who are, are that successful, they don't have to be that honest. And, and he was very honest. And he said at the end of the interview, this was the most personal interview he's ever had. Uh, and I may be paraphrasing it, but that's what I remembered. And then he signed my book, uh, A Load of Hooey, his, his latest book, which is very funny. And, and it's, it would make a great Christmas gift. It's really, really funny. Uh, he writes, Jimmy, thanks for cutting my soul open. Bob Odenkirk. You really can't get a higher compliment than that, especially from somebody you respect. So here it is, and I know you're going to enjoy this, the Bob Odenkirk episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. 
thanks for doing this. You're really welcome. Thanks this. for having me. I've been doing so many interviews, and uh, it's. Uh, Are you spent? Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm spent on interviewing with people who know nothing about me. Okay, that's not you. No, I hope not. But but when you do the interviews, like I did a few a few the other day, where it was like. Fargo and Mr. Show, which was a comedy show. Like, how do you write comedy and then you act? Like, how do you do that? Like, just like weird general questions. And how would somebody said one woman the other day said, how would you describe your comedy? And I'm like, what do you? Well, then you don't know what I do. So why am I talking to you? No, I I wouldn't describe my comedy. No, I I wouldn't. Why would I do that I, to somebody who doesn't know? I, I would happily describe my comedy to somebody who already knows what I do and have a discussion about what it is, you know, and, and what the point of view of it is. But I wouldn't try to express in some, you know, definitive statement what my comedy is to somebody who doesn't know anything about me. It would just be uh, weird. So do you get angry with those people? No, okay. I don't get angry. There, I don't. I. You asked me if I was tired of it. You know, if I was huh? spent, and I'm spent on that. I'm spent on that pain and that feeling, that feeling of the gap uh, between me and the person I'm talking to, and trying to bridge that gap with, you know, whatever a good spirit. I, I, I don't get angry though because I, I, I really, and I've always felt this way, but it's only more true now than ever. There are a million audiences out there. There's a million channels. There's a million places to see and present your material on the Internet and on TV. And the audience is so split and shattered into tiny segments that no one can keep track of all this. You know, no one can know. uh, you, You can't expect people to know what you do, you know, no matter almost who you are. I mean, I haven't heard the new U2 album, and they forced that into everyone's ears, and I still haven't heard it. And not a pe- not not a bit of it. So let's go back to Southern Illinois. All right, um, you were working as a DJ on the radio station. You were doing sketches. You were almost doing like a National Lampoon Radio Hour, right? And you're well, let me tell you the truth. Okay, I was just with Steve Dahl getting mm-hmm. interviewed here on WLS. He's back on terrestrial radio. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid. The things that spoke to me and inspired me were Monty Python number one, but also Steve Dahl. Mm-hmm. And I know that Steve does, you know, parody songs and kind of some crude, you know, um, childish comedy. And I have a lot of childish comedy, and even in a load of hooey. Um, but I think that he was anarchic, and he had a great. Uh, sort of angry spirit that I related to. Because I get the sense with you, Bob, there is an anger. Is, is that right? Mm-hmm. And where do you think that anger comes from? My dad. What about <laughs> your dad? I know he was an alcoholic. What was it that, that... Well, you know, your point's a good one. I mean, is that all there is to it? Because honestly, uh, my dad was angry at something. And, you... it, and I'm sorry, he was pissy about... Uh, he was pissy about the Korean War, which he was in, and he hated. And, um, 
he always bitched about the Navy and said that's where he started drinking and and you know the ship was boring and I think he I'm, I think what he had to do on that ship what the ship had to do which was sink uh, look for junks that were uh, potentially carrying contraband and bomb them <laughs> was uh, kind of fucked him up so because I'm angry besides too. for being bored all right, the time right. Which he um, found it very boring. How has that anger helped you in your comedy? Has it helped me? Yes. How has it helped me? Um, I think the comedy has helped the anger more than the anger has in, helped the in comedy. In what way? It's an outlet. You know, you can you can look as a kid. One of the things that I, with an alcoholic father. When you learn what's happening in your house, there's a great the, the, the great thing is to get the truth out in front of everyone, you know, and just lay it out there and talk about what's happening is a great feeling. What what kind of drunk was he? Was he uh, violent? Was no. He, okay. He was like, you don't see him for two days, three days, and he comes home after you're in bed and you don't see him. And... I think he was, uh, at the time, he, he, he would take me and my brother, my older brother, out to his office sometimes. And he, they'd go to these lunches, he, him and his buddies. They all had no money. Right. They were just living off mortgages and, you know, uh, loans mm -hmm. and advances and arguing over the check. I remember them arguing over the check. A bunch of broke guys. I got this. Are you shut up? This is mine. You're all broke. <laughs> shut up. And as a kid, you know, there was like, yeah, I mean, there's just this desire for truth, you know, tell the truth. You're all broke. Because I can relate to this because I came from a dysfunctional family. Yeah. My dad was a workaholic, went to jail, white-collar criminal. There's a, there's a sense in that, those kind of families where there's so many secrets and we can't go out and tell people the other thing that there's a healing with comedy to get – we get to say what we couldn't express in the yeah, house. Was absolutely. that true for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. To the point where for me it's hard when people – sometimes I go too far. And people are like, why do you have to say that? Or that that's difficult to hear, you know. And you're like, why? But it's true. You know, I mean, why can't we just, you know. And there are times I think I do go too far. And, uh, and I know I'm going to hurt people's feelings. And, and yet, but don't you, you want to say, but don't you see my point? My, my point is whatever, there's hypocrisy here or something's uh, not in, in its proper scale, you know. Give me an example of when you thought you went too far. Uh, Did you ever do it on Mr. Show? Give me the book. I read it the other night and it made me feel bad. It this piece made me feel bad. And this is from your new book. Are we, yeah. everything working out on this? Great. I'm talking to Chloe, the, the producer. Uh, it made you feel bad. Well, it's a, it's a politician apologizing uh, for I misspoke. Uh, rape is an awful act. The other day in a TV interview, I misspoke. I used the word, wrong words, guilty and pleasure, in the wrong way. Now, we don't hear what his sentence was. Mm -hmm. But he's, somehow this po politician said the word rape 
and the word guilty and the word pleasure in some form together near each other. Mm -hmm. And now he's apologizing for it. And in his apology, all he does is he blames, he does that thing where he takes, uh, he says, look, I don't know what I was saying at the time. My mouth was just forming words. He, he basically blames his body for saying those words. So he's not taking any responsibility. He's not taking any responsibility. But also, it's not ever laid out what he said. It's not necessarily true that he said that it, that it was a pleasurable act. It's just saying he got those words in close proximity to each other. And that raised hackles. So what do you feel bad about? Well, rape is an awful thing. If you, how do you judge? You can't. So are you afraid that, that, that women well, are going to come to you and say, oh, how, how dare you talk about rape in this book? It's a comedy No, book. it's that feeling of like, no, but there are people who have been raped. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I can't imagine they can hear a comedy bit with the word in it, mm -hmm. even if they get the point that it's about, it's about politicians and about how they apologize, but with but uh, without really apologizing, they don't uh, really do the uh, the thing that they claim to be doing, which is apologizing. They're not actually doing it. Just say I said the wrong. I don't agree with what I said. It was completely wrong. I feel ashamed. <laughs> Just say that so instead of saying oh, I, my mouth formed some of the consonants and I blame my lungs for the air that. You know, and, and I, it's just, I'm trying to make a point. I don't know. I remember when I wrote it thinking, ah, this is too harsh, but also thinking, but that's the point. The point is he did something that is unforgivable, and he's trying to apologize but not apologize. But oh, so And also maybe it isn't unforgivable. Maybe because nowadays you can be attacked for, Say, remember somebody used the word niggardly, a professor? Used, uh -huh. It's a word. Right. And it's not associated with the N-word. Mm -hmm. It's a different word. It has nothing to do. But remember he had to apologize? Yes, yes. So, so, so you, there's so, all kinds of things going on in so there. So how do you feel now that it's in the book? Are you still uncomfortable with it? Yes. And is that for... for, for is that okay for us to be uncomfortable? Even though we put this in this book, you're still uncomfortable. I think a lot of people, they're uncomfortable, they would have taken it out. Why is it important for you to have it in the book? Hmm. I, I, I think I worry, look, I think about it. I think about what the piece is and what is it saying and if and would a smart person would an intelligent person as intelligent as me which isn't the high bar be able to grasp what it is what the point of it is and if I feel like yeah they would then I leave it in I you have to play to the intelligence of your audience you know the, the most intelligence you can hope for you know, you have to hope that they're, you have to play to them as though they're smart, certainly as smart as you, right? Yes. It's like a Dell Close thing. Play the top of your intelligence. Yeah. So, you know, fuck, this didn't work. Bob is trying to, work. he's closing on a house, thing and, then it he's, didn't work. and he, we've been having problems Dumped getting it. on <laughs> the internet the as we are doing this interview. 
Um, uh, look, I, I, I worry about, you know, great comics push the boundaries and they expect their audience to understand what it is that's going on. And I think it's uh, the right way to handle it. I think if you feel like you're on the edge once in a while, you're probably doing the right thing. If you never feel that way, then you're Garrison Keillor. And I don't know what the point of doing... I do know what the point of doing one Prairie Home Companion is. I don't know what the point is of doing two or more episodes of it. One is great. I get it. We're going to celebrate old-time radio. We're going to be real friendly. We're going to celebrate warmth and kindness and smallness and lack of irony and cuteness and, you know, uh, the family hearth in Minnesota and the quirkiness of small-time radio commercials from the 20s. <laughs> but do you really need to do more than one? I guess there's new songs in every one. Those are pretty good. So um, what I found really fascinating about you, and, and we were in Chicago at the same time, you it started writing for Saturday Night Live. Okay. And then you decide to come back to do a main stage show. Now, most people go to Second City, and then they do a main stage show. You did it in reverse. Why was it important for you to come back and do a main stage show? Well, a lot of people were angry at me here, and you probably know that, right? Yeah. But I don't think it's something personal. I think, don't you think anyone they felt jumped yes. in, in line, they were going to have a resentment Yes, toward. absolutely. And I can't believe that I was so oblivious to that uh, when I said yes to the job, um, which is to say I was at Saturday Night Live writing my third year. Um actually just really starting to feel important or sort of meaningful there. It's because you didn't have an easy time starting. No, I didn't. I, didn't. Mm -hmm. I really didn't. Um, and my friend Tom Giannis sure. uh, was bumped up to main stage director in a kind of a surprise move that Second City used to do and I think maybe still does. I don't really know. I don't keep track of the situation here. But every two years or so, there'd be some sweeping change made. Somebody was put in the main stage cast. A new director was plucked out of nowhere. Joyce Sloan liked that happening. She liked to see that happening. I think other people did too. Del Close put Chris Farley right in the main stage off some, not even a tour company. So that would happen occasionally here. And it may still happen here. But it was, it was good. I, I agree with Joyce that it was good. That was her theory, was that it was good for people to not think that it was just an assembly line that you got in and eventually made it to the front of it the line. It wasn't like a government job. Yeah, it's it was like... show business. It might seem like a government job, but then every once in a while you're reminded that it isn't. Right. It's show business, and if Chris Farley is wonderfully talented and magical you stick them on main stage and get to get to the show mm -hmm. you don't make them hang out for six years so you know so it's a good thing and mm -hmm. i agree with her i agree with that so she picked tom out mm -hmm. as some new blood to get things going on the main stage 
And Tom called me. He said, I want to cast Bob. Tom and I had done a one-man show in the ETC Half theater. Half my face is a new clown. Two I years saw that. before. Yes. And then the, la the year before, I had done Happy, Happy, Good show. No, no. I did Happy, Happy, Good show first, then Half My Face is a Clown the year before. Something like that. I don't know. And Joyce said yes to that, too. She said, okay, bring him in. She'd, know, she'd met me, and we'd talked, and she'd seen me do my show, and I got a good review from uh, Rick... Uh, uh, was it Rick Hogan? Hogan. Okay. Hogan gave me a nice review, okay. which is very nice of him because it was a weird little show. And uh, so Joyce said yes to that. Now, Dave Pasquese, Mark Beltzman, you know, um, Ron West, all these people, and they weren't on the main stage. Dave was, but the other guys weren't. They were all here, and they'd been slaving away for years getting, trying to get to the main stage. And I clearly bumped one of those guys, probably, you know. And so they were pissed. All of them were pissed, you know. Dave, Tim, and all the other guys. Now, Timmy Meadows didn't seem to mind, and Chris Farley didn't mind at all. Of course, he probably was resented for being put in the main stage a year before. And, uh, and Holly Wartell didn't seem to mind, and Jill Talley certainly didn't, because she and I had worked together years before, and we were good friends. Um, but there was quite a few people here who resented, I think. And, how and I don't mean to speak for them. You can right. ask them. But I, I got, got some negative vibes and even some comments. How did people. you deal with that? Well, first I showed up <laughs> ready to go. And you asked me why, and I'll tell you why. Because when I was 14 years old, I came to Second City with a neighbor family, and I went, holy shit, could I do that one day? That's the best thing I ever saw. Don DiPolo was in the main stage, and Judy uh, Morgan Morgan was in the show. And then I, two years later, I came and saw George Went and Jim Belushi and Tim Kazarinski. Mary Gross was probably yeah. in there. Yeah, so Second City was... I didn't even know it was a dream of mine. It was so crazy wonderful that it was like, that can't even be a dream to do that. And you're this guy from Naperville where the right. thought of show business, no one's in show business in Naperville. Yeah, right. So, so first of all, let me say this. When Tom Giannis asked me to do the main stage, I say yes. I mean, a Chicago kid, okay? If you asked me to play on the Cubs, now I would go, it's going to be terrible. I'm going to be horrible, but I'm going to put the fucking uniform on and go out there for you. If you want me to suck on that field, I will suck on that field for you. I will play with the Blackhawks and get the shit kicked out of me. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm going to say yes, because I grew up here. And that's what I wanted to say to all these Second City guys. was like, well, what would I, what do you, I'm going to say no to this? But, of course, I also realized, oh, shit, what did I do? These guys have been waiting for this position, and I'm already at Second uh, Saturday Night Live making, you know, real money. And They want and your job. They want my job, and I come back here and take one of theirs. So I realized it was, it was a mistake, but it was too late, but I also wanted to do it. I mean, I genuinely wanted to do it. I mean, when I came here, I auditioned for Second City. I didn't get in. And I wanted to do Second City. But I very quickly realized that the system, the way it worked here, was probably not going to work for me because I wanted to write my own stuff and do it. I didn't want to do other people's material. I was all about, I was more about writing 
than performing, although I was about both. You were not interested in doing a touring company. No. You're doing Best of Second City. You wanted to do no. your own stuff. If they'd cast me in it, I would have taken it. They didn't. I auditioned. I didn't get it. But I didn't want to do that. And it would have been hard for me. I would have had to swallow it while I did it. So what did you learn, as hard as the main stage show was to yeah. do, what did you learn th that, that's helped you in your career? Because you've done very well. Well, you mean what did I learn from stealing other people's jobs? <laughs> I mean, first thing, I wish I would have said something to those guys. Acknowledged like, it? I apologize. I hope you understand. I'm a Chicago kid, too. And I, and I hope you understand. And also, this is only going to last as long as summer is because that's how long I have off. Because you're going to go, you're gonna go gonna back. You're going to go and back. Right. So you, right. if you can swallow it for two and a half more months, you're fine. Right. Uh, you know, um, as, as well, I also think maybe I had a hand in helping Tim and Chris get to Saturday Night Live. So I, I opened up three how positions did you help for them. them. How did you help them? Well, I wrote Matt Foley. Oh, I know. Which maybe. You couldn't say no to that act, that actor once you saw that sketch. Right. And, and then Timmy Meadows, I, I campaigned for. I mean, I told Jim Downey and everybody that he was hilarious, and he is, and great guy. And, and this is, this I'm is, not saying I got him his No, job. no, but uh, here's another thing. Um, there's two things I want to talk about. But this, this thing I want to talk about. You have, you, you have a reputation for mentoring people. Tim and Eric, mm -hmm. okay, the birthday boys. Yeah. Where does that come from? What What do you get out of that? Why is that important to well, you? Well, listen, this kid here, Brandon, Brandon Wardell. Right. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's not a. Uh, it's not a very um, planned. I don't think about it like, oh, who should I mentor now? <laughs> it's like I, I, I think I'm excited by new voices. And I think I'm excited by people who are trying stuff, and 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 I think I I lose a lot of interest in a in somebody who's really gotten good at what they do. <laughs> so you take including a myself, like I lose interest. Like okay, that's enough of them. They're fine. Okay, you're good. Like I don't care. You like to find somebody who's like a diamond. I don't in even the rough. like to find them. I don't think about do finding them. Do they come them. to you? It's just by accident. I still do, like with Brandon. I said Brandon's opening up. He's yeah. A I said I want to do. My wife has been after me to record Naomi, me doing stand up, yeah. for years. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been patches of time in the last four years where I did stand up four times a week for whatever reason. I should have done that. I should have recorded an album when I was in one of those brief patches. But I never did it because stand-up to me has always been just something I did for fun and a way to get up in front of people and read jokes and hear laughs. You didn't have this, like, anti-stand-up thing. No, not I, at okay, all. Okay, okay. Because my generation, which is a little after yours, had it was more improv than and we looked down at stand-up. I don't understand that. I got, okay. I mean, when UCB opened in L.A. and they had stand-up and improv and sketch and some nights they had a show that was stand-up and improv... I was like, thank you. Finally. This Chicago bullshit of like fucking stand-ups from the sketch people and fucking you know, pure improv. We only improvise. No writing, you know. What? What? Why would anyone? Why? Who? What is going on? They're all comedy. And I got to tell you, if you read a book like The Compass written by uh, uh, Janet, Coleman. Janet Coleman, who's my wife's. Aunt, 
Can you believe that? I can't believe that. It's a great is book. Is that crazy? Yes. Janet Coleman is Naomi's aunt. Janet Coleman wrote a book called The Compass. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book. And mm. she's a funny, smart lady and a good actress, too. Anyhow, go read that book, everyone. Uh, Severn Darden, Del Close, they did monologues. Right? Yep. In the early years. Well, I mean, how far is that from stand-up? Who could be more pure than those guys? And they were standing on the stage doing single-person riffs and, you know, comedy runs. Well, and yet somehow, by the time I was at Second City, it was like, no stand-up. You, know, you don't go out there alone and do anything. What? It's just comedy. It's just a stage. It's a place to perform. Mix it up. It's fun. It's great. You know? And um, so anyways, I... I uh, so Brandon's a good example. So I, I finally, when this Better Call Saul show was about to start, and I really could see that, like, it's going to be five months of me shooting this show. I'm not going to be able to do stand-up. And these jokes are old. Some of these jokes are eight years old, six years old, whatever. I don't like keep jokes forever, but they kind of hang around in certain files in my computer and they find their way back in. And I'm like, I got to just tell these, get them on a record and get away from them. Because six months from now, when I get done with the show, I'm never doing them again. There's no way I'm going to want to revisit them. And uh, so I called Matt Belknap, who runs uh, Special Thing Records, and I said, look, if I do a show next Thursday, it was Thursday, can you get an audience there and can you record it and maybe we'll have an album out of it if I like it well enough? And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay, so here's my idea. I want you to get me the youngest stand-up who's good that you know in town. He goes, I got a guy. He's great. He started when he was 17. He's 21 now. He's really young and he's good. I go, great. He opens for me. He does 10 minutes. Then I do 40, 50 minutes. And if I like my set, I put it on the album. And if I like his set, we put it on the album, too. Don't tell him that. And it's going to be called Amateur Hour, and it'll fe feature me and him. So we went and did that show, and they didn't tell Brandon that he was being recorded for a possible album. And when it was done, uh, we, we did a few cleanups of it, not too much, and we're putting it out. And, and uh, Brandon's on it, and I liked his set, and I liked his attitude, and he's a real stand-up, unlike me. Um, and, uh, I've been witness to that the last few nights cause we've been on tour and in these, uh, in, in Milwaukee and Minnesota, it's all my audience and they're all, they're mostly 40 years old or older. And what are they fans of yours now at this? It, it's about one, it's about one eighth better call Saul. And then the rest is kind of everything. And, and then it's about. It's a good half, Mr. Show. So it's good. It's a good mix. I, I was worried that all these Better Call Saul fans would come out and not go, not understand why I'm telling jokes or making fun of religion and, like, go, why is the actor being rude? And it's not, that hasn't been the case. There are a few people, and they only know me from Breaking Bad, and I think they like it. I don't know. I can't help them. I mean, I'm sorry that, 
whatever if that's what you if that's all you know and you think it's inappropriate for me to be telling jokes because I'm an actor from a show but it's not too many people let's go back to to the um, anyway yeah Brandon yeah song good okay. interesting that's fun I said come on out and do this do it with me do this uh you know, show, and he does stand-up, and he's referencing Drake and Waka Flocka Flame, and my audience is like, huh? And uh, I love it. I, I'm excited about new things, you know? But I you have, like, 40 projects going at once all the time. That's not true. Okay, 30? That's a uh, miss. That's, okay, that's that's a Wikipedia. You're getting a, a call? Do you... No, it's Megan who's in the show tonight. Okay. Um, Just tell me she's late. It's okay. okay. Uh, I know how it appears. Yes. But think about it, Jimmy. This is stuff that's been sitting in my drawer a collecting for five years, right? Just write a piece, set it aside. Write a piece, set it aside. And when I was doing Breaking Bad, I wasn't in every episode. And when I was, I was in one or two scenes. It's not like I was working seven days a week. I had plenty of time to write and send stuff to The New Yorker. And I wrote pilots and stuff. And I take care of my kids a lot. I spend hours with my kids hours and hours every day uh not recently but for the years that i was doing breaking bad i was home a lot and uh so I'd write a piece every couple weeks it's not that hard and um what happens is it all came out at once so it appears as though he's writing books he's making an album that's not the case at all i recorded the album before i did better call saul i recorded the album in june you know, and there was no prep for it because I set the bar low, calling it amateur hour and trying to get across to people that I am an amateur at stand up. And I am compared to my friends and people, my colleagues, David Cross, Patton Oswalt, Paul F. Tompkins, you know, Louis C.K. These are guys. These are pros. I'm not a pro. So why are you what 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 drives you to do stand up? Well, I just write comedy and I want to. I got a joke. I want to tell it to somebody. You want to do it. You want to hear a laugh. When I was at Saturday Night Live, I would do stand-up, and it saved my soul because I couldn't get a thing on the show for the first two years except what I helped with. And uh, I was just dying there. And so going out to the, uh, the improv is where I'd go and telling jokes for 10 minutes and getting some laughs from people made me walk out going, okay, I'm funny. What okay. changed things at Saturday Night Live? Because you struggled. You know, I didn't do great ever there. I was ever? never a powerful or important writer there. Never. Did that eat at you, or were you okay with that? It, it ate at me. I mean, I could see the reasons why. Why, do you think? I, I think that... I don't, I don't know. I, um, was it where you were at at the time? Well, I mean, the important writer at the time was Robert Smigel. Mm -hmm. And I worked with Robert a lot. Right, and I you contributed a lot to his work. Mm -hmm. And you guys knew each other from yeah. Chicago, starting out yes. at Players Workshop. That's right. But he was an important writer. The Turners were very important, Did contributed a lot of material. Um, and Jim Downey. But I would say Robert was the key writer. To me, he wrote the sketches that people talked about. Can I throw a theory out? Yeah. That, that it wasn't really your kind of environment. That you were, you, 
Mr. Show, how you I'm set up. I'm not a team player. That's why. Do you think that's what it is? I don't know. Or do you have a team player or you have to run the show? I think I kind of have to run the show a little bit. Although as an actor, I don't have any trouble not running the show. I love not running the show as an actor. With Better Call Saul, I don't help with the script at all. You just show up, learn I, your lines? I actually don't want to. If they tell me they want to talk about what's coming up, I'm like, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know. I didn't read any outlines for upcoming episodes. They're always sent to me. I don't read any of them. I don't want to know. I want to, I want to read what my character is doing in this scene, what he wants in this scene that I'm doing today, and I want to think about where he's at emotionally and what he wants, and that's it. I don't want to know what he wants to know tomorrow or to, you know, in this episode coming up. I want to know what he wants in this scene right now from these people. That's it. That's all I want on my mind. Is that because of a maturing thing? No, I think part? it's an. It's your job as an actor. That's your job. So you don't have any creative input in the show. You show up. You do your lines. Well. You're not trying to change the arc or... Yeah. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't want it. I, I feel like I'm a much better actor. When I first sat down behind the desk in the office to play Saul at Breaking Bad, the first time I did a scene, I remember sitting in the chair and going, oh, I wonder how much time we have to shoot this. And then thinking, where are the cameras? How long is it going to take to light this? And then I was like, you don't have to worry about any of that shit. You're an actor. Stop thinking like a producer or a director or the writer. Stop it. Your job is to do these lines, ask yourself what's behind them, what's really going on, what, do, what does my character know, what does he think he wants, how's he feeling. That's your only job. You don't need to know any of that other shit. You're not in charge of any of it. You don't help with it. Shut your fucking mind off and play this guy and be this guy. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was wonderful. I loved it. Now, you, I think you're a great actor. And, oh. and um, a lot of people listen to the podcast. They're students and stuff like that. And they're thinking, okay, Bob's done stand-up. He's done sketch. He started out doing improv. To get to a career with like you have in terms of acting and writing and producing, what do you have to do? It's not just, I'm going to do improv every night. It's more than that. What is that? You know, I don't, I don't, first of all, it, I never thought, I, I never really sat down and said, how do I get this kind of career that I want? Um, you just lucked into it? You no, think? I didn't luck into it. Cause you're very I think hard I just, working. I just woke up every day and did stuff that I was interested in and wanted to see happen. I think I have a good work ethic for planting my ass in a chair and taking out a blank sheet of paper and trying to fill it with ideas. It's something I did in junior high. And so it's something I can do. And that probably has helped me more than anything. Another thing that's helped me is, you know, I, I was a pretty half-formed individual even in the age, in, when I was in my 20s. And that's difficult because you see people around you who know who they are, who know their voice, and who are making strides in their career because of that. They can, they can express themselves in a clear and concise way. And, and the good thing about being sort of ill-formed or un unformed is 
because I had this long meandering road, I wasn't defined by any great success. I mean, Mr. Show was an artistic success, I think. It was a pure vision and it was a pure representation of our voice, David and mine, and we're proud of it. And it came out the way we pictured it pretty much 95% of the time. Um, but I never felt, you know, like I have to do more of that. Whenever you have success, there's a feeling like, I owe the audience more of that thing they love. But I never had that, so I don't owe anybody anything. So every day was a bit of a blank uh, slate, well, which is, you know, challenging and kind of nerve-wracking, but great because I was able to reinvent myself and not feel like, I mean, I don't think anybody sees me in these movies and goes, no, that's F.F. Woody Cooks. <laughs> he can't play a, a real guy because he's that thing that I love. Because there's, there's nothing I've done that anyone loved that much. I, I don't mean to sound sad. I'm not at all sad. I'm thrilled that I had this, uh, I have had this cultish fame, and I wouldn't be thrilled to have it continue. I mean, the challenge, of course, is in Hollywood, uh, you need to make money for people. And when you're in a project that makes money for people and is a kind of resounding success monetarily, that is a big uh, plus in your column for future work. Like, I get the sense Mr. Show didn't make a no, lot of money for didn't. HBO, no. so they're really not interested in it. No. So they'll, they'll bounce it around the schedule like yeah, they did. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it won't, it'll earn you tons of, you know, uh, you know, credit from the artists who go, that was a pure vision and good job, but you still are struggling to sell a show or, or you know, but I think that the success I've had just being a part of Breaking Bad has now given me this a little bit of extra oomph when it comes to, you know, other projects that I want to do or want to be included in. I'm, I'm sure it helped me get cast in Fargo. I'm sure it helped me get cast in Nebraska. You know, I mean, those directors chose me and wanted me, but it helps to have made money in Hollywood. Which was a for great, somebody. great movie, Nebraska. Um, yeah. And you were great in really it. Proud it was of it. And, uh, how much of that, because it's, I mean, Bruce Stern's character, that guy is a busted-out alcoholic. And Bruce has never drank a drop of alcohol. How much of that was like, oh, my God, this is my childhood? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I told Alexander, I go. Alexander Payne, who directed yeah, it. Yeah, and this is my, not only that, I'm the brother who's like, fucking tell him. He's a fucking drunk. Just let's say it. You know, he's an asshole. Fuck him. You know, I mean, that was my voice in the family was, uh, you know, let's call it what it is and tough shit for this asshole and uh, a little bit unforgiving. So I related to that character and his the way he felt about his father and the situation. Um, I want to talk about Matt Foley really quickly because that's, you know, you said that it was the strangest sketch you ever wrote. And One you, of the strangest. There's a few in that column. Okay. Many. And that you didn't think it was funny. Can you explain that? Uh, so Chris did Chris Farley. some version of that voice here. At Second City I on the main stage. Yes. Show. Okay. Because, you know, that's just natural to him, that voice. Yeah. That, you know, it, hey, uh... 
all right, gather up, right. team. We're going to get out there and kick some ass. Right. You know, like the coach. Right. That was kind of – you think that was kind of based on his dad or was it – Oh, this – now, see, this I don't know. His and boy. I don't know if Matt Foley is just a guy he loved – who was a was he a priest? Matt Foley was a priest of okay. him. That the name was Matt Foley. It's just the name. He the took. name was the from guy Marquette. Attitude was was not... Farley. It was a, Farley always did like you said that character. But Matt Foley was a priest that went uh, with him to Marquette, I believe. But the actual Matt Foley was not like a coach or no, a, no, you know, a hectoring guy. No, that was kind of like a combination of. It's all just Farley. the name he wanted to yes, use. Yes, yeah, because he loved the guy. Well, and you know, he Chris always liked to drop people's name names yeah. in if they came and they were seeing a show he'd throw you know bob smith who yeah he'd, he'd love to do that right so so he did a, like a coach type character mm-hmm. and i went home and i thought the simple thought of what about a guy who uses himself a, a motivational speaker who uses himself as an example of what not to be simple thought simple idea good good structural idea for a joke and a story and I wrote that sketch, and, and the weird thing about that and Manson Lassie and there's just a few others. Usually when you write a sketch, you kind of find it. You have to rewrite it. You find it. You pick a part of it. You build out on that part. You know, you, th- there are only a few sketches where I wrote it out, and then that's how we did it, and it was good. And it was good build, and it was good structure, and that was one of them. I mean, I wrote it on a piece of paper like that, and, we, and I brought it in, and I handed it to Chris, and uh, and he went up on stage and slaughtered with it. So and the first time you did it in a set, because it's not in the show, it kills. It was a script. Right. I don't think we ever did it in an improv set. Oh, we, you didn't even... No, it was I just brought it right into the show? Yes, it was okay. brought in as a script. Okay. And they allowed me to do that. Some people might not have liked it, but I was a writer from Saturday Night Live. And I brought in a couple sketches that were written out as scripts. Not improvised. And they went right directly to the show. You didn't They have went to... into the rehearsal process and went to the show. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I understand maybe that's not well, I'm just uh, allowed, the... but it I'm is, not saying though, it's right? Al- I mean, I'm yeah, not I'm not saying it allowed. No, no. I'm but... just saying for the audience just to know that, that Second City usually works. You, you come up with an idea, and then you, you do it in a set. Usually, and... but that's, that's a soft usually. Right. People write stuff all the time. Right. Yes. So that gets in, in the first time he does it, it just slays. Oh, God. Every time he does it, it slays. The whole way through, from the time he walks out. I mean. Are you blown away by the oh, reaction? Oh, my God. Like, this is. I'm not better. only blown away by the reaction. My daughter asked me what was the best time you've ever had in showbiz. And I said, doing this sketch with Chris Farley at Second City eight times a week was the best thing I ever had in show business, the best feeling I ever had. The best time. It was pure joy, pure magic energy and greatness. It was just nuts how great it was. It was like doing ecstasy for seven minutes or however long it lasted because Chris would just keep improvising it and and pushing it further. And and let me ask you this because I know for me, like if I was doing that, here you are, you wrote this. He's getting the laugh. And they've got to be, like, ripping furniture and throwing. I mean, it's got to be pandemonium in terms of the reaction. You're loving this. There's no jealousy on your part? None. No way. Are you kidding me? That was the greatest thing ever. No, I felt no jealousy at all. And you're not a jealous guy. 
Oh, I can be very jealous, I think, yeah. In what you area? you got to watch out for that. Um, look, the fact is I had a couple of years where I, I didn't do work that I think was up to par for me. After Mr. Show? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I can come up with a lot of excuses, but that was a rough time, and I thought a lot, why is this, you know, some people move, you know, as naturally happens any year. People have, this year I'm having a great heyday. You know, people have heydays. And then they, you know, fade and you have your just go back to working, you know. And so I will soon do that. <laughs> Very soon I will slip back into that category and it's perfectly fine. Uh, but while I was struggling to come up with a project I could love and, and, and deliver on and, uh, you know, trying to make projects work and struggling through a lot of development, writing pieces that turned into Load of Hooey, um, you know, yeah, I would feel jealousy towards people and their did you ever opportunities. Feel, that did they you got. ever feel like, oh, because at one point it's Mr. Show, then Dave, D David Cross is getting a lot of that's true, a lot of spotlight. That's true. And then now it's now now it's now it's your turn. Yeah. Was that hard? Because I would imagine yes. people would be like comparing you. You know, like oh yes, absolutely, yeah. And David was doing great. He was in Arrested uh, Development and uh, a lot of movies and. Uh, and he's still doing great. He just sold two shows in England that are going to play. Uh, you know, he's he's doing great. Um, but, you know, one thing that helped is all that happened when I was older. And, and you know how it is. You you see things and you go, oh, this is his time. Right. And, and so even though I was jealous, I would just tell myself, just, you know, let it out and, and how hang do you in there. How do you let it out? Just scream? Go write something funny. Mm-hmm. Go sit your ass down and write something. Uh, work out. I mean, it's good to work out, mm -hmm. especially as you get older. Right. Because you can just, it's good for your brain mm -hmm. to sweat and work out. And So I, wor I would work out and, and make an effort and uh, take care of your kids and, uh, and just hang in there mm -hmm. and try to keep your chin up because... The, this is a great business for allowing people more opportunities. And when those come, and they may take a few days, and they may take two years or five years to come, you want to be ready, have a good attitude, uh, believe in that it can happen, that something good can happen, and you can make something out of it. So that's your job then. And I knew that at that point. At that point, I was like, it'll, it'll all come around again. Just... You know, keep your chin up. Try not to get too mad. Don't get pissed at people. And let's let's just, you know, write something good today. And you know what I mean? You just try to do that. So we got to wrap this up because you've got to get into rehearsal. What one piece of advice would you give somebody starting out in comedy today? Well, I said something in an interview the other day, and everyone's making too big a deal out of it. Somebody said... I said, get out of comedy. I did not say get out of comedy. You're talking about the Salon article yes. when you said get out of comedy because it's all it's about to collapse? Yeah, but I didn't say that. And I what did you, I did, what did you say? That's not what I meant. What, what I had did, said was okay. the We're, day before that interview, I had visited the new UCB. On Sunset. Theater and workspace. It's like a complex, right? Yes. Okay. It is huge. Mm -hmm. It has 14 classrooms, if I'm not mistaken. It's wonderful. I was at the opening day party. It was one of the greatest days of my life. You stood in the hallways and people walked by you 
every face from the scene in L.A., older, younger, unbelievable. There's never been a building that could hold all those people, so that never happened before. Why was it so great for you? Because you... It just made you happy to stand there, and here's all these young people in groups. I know a lot of them, some I've never seen. Here's old friends. Here's, you know, just people from the scene for the last 20 years, and they're all in one building. I mean, it was crazy, man. Crazy. I've never been at an event that had so many comedy people doing cool stuff and having a great time and happy and thrilled to be in together, to be in a group. And, and I bet people are thrilled to see you, too. I don't know. I think they're just, they're all happy to see each other. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm special that way. Anyways, um... So salon article. You did so. Really... So it was the day after that, but but it was not. It was not the party. It was the day after I'd gotten a tour of the place and uh -huh. I'd seen the fourteen classrooms. And I just thought, okay, this is too big now. There's too many people doing it. Improv. <laughs> it's going to implode. Right. Improv in particular. Okay. Now that look, you were through the comedy stand-up boom, right? Yep. Here you in remember. Chicago. Yes. Zanies and the Funny Bone. Two clubs, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe there were no. There were two zanies. There were two zanies and one funny bone. Here's and then bone. two years later, there were four funny bones and six zanies. Right. And then we had uh, the improv came here. Remember? And the improv. And then the and the com the Chicago Comedy Factory. Right. And the funny and firm. And the funny firm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And every hotel had. And a, every hotel had, had a comedy. comedy night. Yeah. And mo a lot of bars had a comedy yeah. night. Mm -hmm. So, that was cuckoo. Right. And it could not sustain, and it would not sustain, and it didn't. So this, look, all I was really saying was not get out of comedy, but I think, okay, so now everyone's improvising, okay, everyone. Mm -hmm. There's 14 classrooms, okay? That's just at the UCB. Right. There's Iowa, there's, Iowa, there's Second City, Second Groundlings. City yeah. Groundlings. Okay, so now everyone's improvising. Right. So what's next? Because it's not, maybe I'm wrong. And I, hey, look, I love sketch comedy. I still do it. I'm helping the birthday boys. David and I are going to do a Mr. Show special. I got another idea for a sketch show. I mean, I'm always going to do sketch in some way. I, I love it. So if it keeps going forever, great. I win, right? But the fact is, it feels like this is a bit of a moment in time. So What's my advice? It's not get out of comedy, but it is like once people have had their fill of improv, what are they going to want next? What Are they going to want to just go watch punk rock and be in a punk rock band? Are they going to play 12-inch softball? What's going to be next? Because I don't think – am I wrong, Jimmy? No, my question to you is – And I, I, and I, I, would, I would propose. Okay. I would propose yes. that maybe – Writing and story comes next. But what, what does that look like? Cause you're, you're maybe it looks like sketch shows. Maybe it looks like plays. Maybe it's drama. Maybe it's screenplay writing. Maybe it's... I, I don't know what it is. But, but I'm just saying, if I was one of those people who is entering that improv world that's now got so many people in it, I would... I would and it's just a natural instinct in me, too would go, okay, fine, everyone's doing this. Fuck this shit. What, am, what, what are people not doing enough of? Or what's cooler than this? What's 
what digs a little deeper. But how do you find what's cooler? How do you how do well, you go I mean, to it's the, a, it's the not a matter thing? of like it's not a uh, scientific thing where you sit back and you uh, you take out a spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, you use your instincts and your you 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 use your gut to figure out what's next, and and it could be a number of things. If it's 12-inch softball, then I can't help you because I wouldn't. You, I can't force myself to care about that. But uh, hopefully, it's some, you know, uh, Were you saying transformation of of what is happening in the improv scene into even more interesting stuff. Were you almost saying, and and and, and that don't get lulled into this improv yeah, thing. That's don't what I've don't seen. don't be don't be content. There's yeah. other things out there, which really is how you've led your life. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I say I was pretty focused on sketch comedy for a long time, and I think SNL when it end when it ended for me, and I, I knew I wanted to perform, and that's why I left is because I w wanted to get better as a performer. I didn't ask to perform on SNL because I said to Lorne, not that he cared if I left. I don't blame him, by the way. I wasn't that big of a help over there. Um, but I said, look, I want to perform, and I'm not good enough to ask you to let me perform on this show. I know that, and so I need to go hit the skids and, and get to work and try to become better at it because I do love it enough that I don't think I can be uh, only a writer and be happy. So I, I have to go either to Chicago or L.A. where I can pay my rent and... And I, and I have to get back to work getting better at acting and performing. And, and so I left there. Yeah, so I don't, sometimes when I think you look at someone's career, you, you think there's a lot of um, planning involved and you know, there isn't a lot of planning. You know? uh, um, one last question, with, with, with the Better Call Saul coming out, mm -hmm. You've had ups and downs, disappointments and hits. Mm -hmm. how, how do you take this in stride? What are, you, what are your expectations for a show like this, realistically? There's a lot of like attention on this show to be a, a big hit. I know. <laughs> how it's do you deal with gonna that? It's going to get its ass kicked a little. You know, there's, it's going to get punched around. And That's just the way it is. I mean, we all know that. Um, I'm going to say this. The writing is excellent. As um, good as Breaking Bad. Oh, it's the same writers. Okay. So I'd say But yes. I mean, have they found the rhythm of the show? It's a different rhythm. Okay. And it's a different kind of show. It's similar in some ways, especially as it starts off. Mm -hmm. But as it goes, it becomes its own beast. And what that is exactly, I would leave to the writers to pontificate on um, it's really special and unique uh, I, I will I will I'm going to try to stay out of the fray as much as I can until the middle of season two and I think somewhere around the middle of season for me this is for me you're asking me I'm asking I'm the you star. Bob Odenkirk, the star of the show right? yeah so, for me, I think the middle of season two is when I'm going to start looking at the whole thing and going, okay, where are we? Now, we have two seasons ordered. 
You know that, right? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they're already, we're going to plan in the schedule for season two. And because Vince and Peter, Peter Gould, Vince Gilligan, are on a journey that even they are discovering, I, I promise you, even they are like, what happens next? I'm not sure. Let's figure it out. They're not sure. They're discovering it. Um, I don't think we're going to know what the real core and rhythm of the show is and be able to judge it with some perspective until then. That's when I think you'll be able to look at it all and go, okay, okay. It's a character study, but it, and I, I will say this, it, it is in some ways about transformation, which is what Breaking Bad was about. Mm -hmm. Thematically, it seems to me that's kind of what's going on. It's a character transforming, discovering himself. Are you excited, I mean, for this? I am, and I'm not worried about the flash of the opening and how big they're going to try to play it or how big it's going to be or how hungry people are for it. I'm happy for that, and that will have its bumps, and I'll go up, you know, it'll, it'll be uh, a lot of turbulence, right? But I know how good and, and meaty and well-written the whole season is and how well-played it is certainly by Michael McKeon and uh, Jonathan Banks and the actors who I watched because I was in scenes with them. And so I know those values are there, those qualities are there. And so there's a kind of a, I don't see anybody dismissing us out of hand. Because if it was me... It's got too much guts to it. If it was me, I'd be like, this show's going to be on for 10 years, just like Breaking Bad. Do, <laughs> do, you, do you go there, or do you just... Wow, I'm so not thinking about years. Okay. I'm thinking about the story only. Where does it go next? What is? What are we learning? And how rich it is? And I just don't think about it. Bob Odenkirk, thank you yeah. so much. Your book, A Load of Hooey... Uh, buy it it's very very funny thanks buddy. and there you have it another episode of improv nerd is in the can and i want to thank our guest today bob odenkirk and i love that story he told about him and chris farley on the main stage as one of his most memorable moments uh check out his new book a load of hooey it is very very funny and it would make a great holiday gift so check that out. I also want to thank Allison Riley at the Second City here in Chicago and Jen Winken at the Up Comedy Club for making this happen, for coordinating this. Uh, that was so kind of them. I really, really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, here in Chicago, who makes it sound so slick and so professional, as well as my assistant, Chloe Fitzpatrick. Uh, also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, The Artist Low Comedy, uh, and my improv uh, blog, please go to jimmycorain.com and get on the mailing list. I want to send you my blog. Every week you will get a new blog about, about improv that will make you a better improviser and a better person. Well, the better person is up to you. Also, uh, as you know, we are slowly taking over social media. We're doing it uh, slowly, but we're, we're, I think we're doing a good job of it. Uh, we started with Facebook, so go to our Improv Nerd fan Facebook page and like us because it really helps with my low self-esteem. And then go over to Twitter and follow us on Twitter, Improv underscore Nerd. And then over to our YouTube channel, and you'll get to see clips from the actual podcast. 
we're also on Feral Audio. You've probably figured that out. We're, uh, it's part of a podcast collective. There's a lot of great podcasts on Feral, so go check out feralaudio.com. I want to thank our sponsors today, uh, both of our sponsors, the Houston uh, Improv Festival and the OC Improv Festival. So I want to thank them again, and especially I want to thank you for listening, because without you, I'm just broadcasting in my, my den to my cat. So, as always, until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island, and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff. I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 